Dr. Amalia Ganyas-Malka. Welcome to Womanity, Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socioeconomic class division, and gender-based violence. Joining us today in our Johannesburg studio is Professor Arjen Janser van Rensburg, who is the Director of the Architecture Program at the School of Architecture and Planning in the Faculty of Engineering and Built Environment at the University of the Witwatersrand. Architecture is part of everyone's lives, from the places we call home to the spaces we work in to the landmarks that intersect our, our journeys. Prof. Janser van Rensburg, first of all, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. And second of all, can you please tell us more about the School of Architecture and Planning as well as the responsibilities that are attached to your role as director for the architecture program? Thank you very much. Uh, so the Witz School of Architecture is actually one of the il- oldest in the country, but it's only been since 1994 that we've actually been open to all students. And I think one of my biggest responsibilities there as director is, first of all, we're trying to prepare students to be able to go out and be architects who can change the world. Uh, And that means that it's not just about training them to be able to design good buildings. It's about training them to think creatively about the problems that face us in the world, which is changing all the time and how to find good solutions to those. But it's also about giving everybody access because um, the profession has had a very Northern Hemisphere bias for a long time. And the problems that we have to solve are not solved by really iconic, glitzy, high-tech buildings. There are many more important things which stare us in the face every day. If we are designing for diverse people and communities and cultures and priorities, uh, and if we have no planet B, uh, the way in which architecture should be approaching building and problem solving is becoming very different from what Mm -hmm. it was two generations ago. I imagine there's a considered blend in terms of, of culture, society, materials and environment is being taken into consideration. Yes, because one's always designing for people and you're designing in a context. Uh, So the biggest overshadowing change in the whole profession now is sustainability. Uh, Buildings are extremely capital intensive investments, not just in terms of money, but in terms of energy that went into producing the materials and the energy that the building is going to take for the rest of its life and whether it can be reused eventually when functions change. So that is an enormous responsibility which is which is only really now starting to uh, become the, uh, the prime concern for many people. Uh, but we are designing for people mm. and building the difference between architecture and just shelter is that architecture is trying to give expression and meaning to people's lives uh, and you need to understand the people that you're designing for you need to understand the society in which you are working uh, in order to design for people I was intrigued by your, your statement there is no planet B 
which is completely true in absolutely every respect. But can you expand on it in the context of architecture? Well, we are... So I think the, the, the bigger perspective is there's rapid urbanization throughout the world. People are moving to cities to look for jobs. Um, some time ago at a conference, somebody was saying that in order to accommodate this kind of urbanization, the world needs to be producing one new city that can house a million people every day. Um, so our problems are really not at the scale of an individual building. They are at the scale of how can we uh, make people, give people comfortable and sustainable shelter uh, at the rate that the demand is increasing. And that means many ways of doing things were just too labor intensive, too time intensive, too energy intensive. Uh, we have limited resources and we need to be looking at new solutions, not how do you build with bricks and concrete and glass. Yes, of course, we ne need to know that. But what alternatives are there? What materials are there that embody less energy? What is immediately available? Because transport of materials is a huge issue. So there, there are many things like that. So we're saying, how can you design buildings that use the minimum of energy? How can you design buildings which do not use up resources and how can you design buildings which are not doing harm in the process of building them and stepping back for a moment with your academic architect hat on yes. your approach to teaching has has really taken transformation in south africa seriously with implementation of a decolonized curriculum where part of the intention is for students to become aware and question their own lived experience as well as taking cognizance of the realities of others and then what i really liked was establishing their own learning philosophies please tell us more about this initiative and its success factors well, it's been very exciting being involved in this. So for a while I was trying to work on how to level the playing field to make to prepare students who are coming into the course for success. But the biggest challenge is we are designing for the future. We are designing uh, for people. Uh, and any one of us comes from a particular background. I can't teach you how other people's lives work. So we have to design a curriculum in which people are teaching each other, in which peer learning is happening. And uh, it's about collaborative learning, collaborative work amongst students, collaborative work amongst staff. And it was something which I could see the need for that, but it was, you can only do it as a collaborative. And I was very fortunate that I was part of a team of young dynamic and diverse colleagues uh, and we've been combining our experience and trying to work out a new curriculum. My colleague Sachaba Maupe, Dr. Maupe has been doing his PhD on indigenous knowledge systems and the forms of learning which have traditionally worked are things like embodied learning and collaborative learning and we find that they just those are those are theories which one can put into practice so we set up groups of students as they come in in and they have to f solve new problems through 
exploring things together. So I think students come in, they think, but I came to study architecture. I'm not sure that this is architecture, but this is the absolute stuff that you need to become an architect. It's for groups of people to understand each other, to understand what they have in common, what they what they can agree on, what they think is important for the future, and then use that as a basis for a design mm. project. It's almost like architecture is the tool, but it's all of this understanding that has to take place before you can develop the tool. Yes, and you need you need that understanding in order to be an architect, but you also need that understanding in order to design for people. Uh, so. I believe that learning has to happen on different, the, the final sort of technical learning in your field is only the cherry on top. Learning and has to happen at a social level and at a level of problem solving and um, understanding the context in which you're working. And you can use that in many other fields afterwards, mm. not just as an architect. I was going to say this approach to learning arguably should go across all disciplines. Well, I think what's very exciting and interesting is that in uh, fora on on decolonization and fora on how should learning be changing at universities, uh, more and more other faculties are looking to what we've been doing and saying, but this is relevant and exciting. You qualified as an architect. You went into practice, establishing your own practice before working in academia. What inspired you to study architecture? Well, I suppose the simple answer is my father was an engineer with a very practical approach to things and my mother was an artist and I ended up with um, interest and experience in both of those things. Uh, but I think what, what actually made things gel is I had the opportunity to go to London when I was in matric. Um, I went as part of a science Olympiad team. Uh, but for the first time I saw buildings, I saw a city which had developed over time with layers and layers of history and meaning and interesting buildings that I hadn't seen back home. And I suddenly realized, but this is fascinating. It's not just the kind of the, the art side of things and the technical side of getting things there, but it's about people and meaning and history and all the things that make me excited. And as you went into practice, what were your design preferences for, for buildings, residential, commercial? I think my sort of background was, I was brought up to believe that people are more important than things. And I think I really enjoying I enjoy designing for people. I enjoy understanding what people need and want and what their aspirations are and why they want a certain kind of building and then usually if you can piece the whole context together you can produce something which is more than they thought that they wanted and that's that to me is very exciting so I enjoy designing buildings for the people who are actually going to use them and I've been involved in educational buildings and uh, community buildings, religious buildings, individual houses are always interesting, although they're very time consuming because it's somebody's whole lifetime aspiration which needs to go into one small building and budget. Um, so yes, I'm not, I'm not a commercial architect. I've done that kind of work, but there it's about whether you can get a better investment for your client than if you were to invest his money in the bank. So. Um, that's, to me, not the most exciting challenge. And what would you say, out of all of the 
pieces that you've you've worked on stands out the most for you? Um, I think the house that we built for ourselves because we did it on a farm. We had a very low budget. We were looking at rural wattle and daub technology for building parts of the house. And I was basically the, the person uh, on site learning how to bend conduits and things like that. I learned a tremendous amount from it. But I think to me it's a building which could it could integrate the meaning of various communities in that area of the high fields. And it w uh, the actual inspiration for the project came from my husband. We often work as a team, which is very great. Um, but I think it was a very satisfying project, yes. And it seems to have been solutioning, utilizing materials from the area. You don't have transport to, to take into account. You are reflecting the society of of the of the environment the of, the, of the of the whole area. Yes, yes. So, um, and it was um, it. You, they always say architects' houses are never finished, but it was a kind of project that one could add to over time. And yes, uh, so for me, that I think it's this integration of meaning and context and technology and practicality and and a personal expression is really what makes architecture exciting for me. But the process of becoming an architect is very long. It's almost the equivalent of becoming a doctor. Yes, it is, because it's a, it's a very complex field. Uh, so you are working with uh, social factors, uh, urban factors, uh, technological factors, structurally your buildings do have to stand, um, and you are working with teams of people. You are, you are not building the building yourself. You have to produce really good communication so that a team of other people can produce that building. So all these factors combined means that you need to, it's, it's quite a rare integration of interests and skills. Uh, and there's a lot of ground that needs to be covered. And then you need to have some practical experience. Th uh, theory is all very well, but you only start realizing why you learned the theory when you start trying to apply it. What's that statement? Theory doesn't work in practice. <laughs> it does, but there's a lot more than just <laughs> the theory that's needed. <laughs> and I was surprised to learn that although there's seems to be an equal proportion of men and women graduating with an architectural qualification that globally around the world women only account for approximately 20 percent of practicing architects yes that is a big subject for debate uh, in south africa the proportion is a little better than say in america we have a higher proportion of women but we find that the highest proportion of women in the architectural profession is in the uh, technologists' um, layers of the profession and a far smaller percentage actually become uh, professional architects. I, th I think it's a, it's a complex thing. Uh, there are, I think, because it's a long, a long training, uh, life also has to happen in parallel and i think by the time we we have about a 50 50 percent graduation at undergraduate level but we'll find that 
a low percentage of women come back for their postgraduate training. I think many of them by that time have families and there's an expectation that they are the people who need to look after the kids. Uh, and the other thing is that it costs a lot of money to study. So if you have to pay back study loans, you end up working as a technologist and maybe you work as a technologist for 10 years before you say, okay, now I really want to come back mm. and complete my studies, which which quite a few women students do. But I think family, family expectations, the fact that you need to repay your, that your family put you through varsity for the first degree and now you need to give something back. Um, and I think when it wins, even when people finally graduate, we have about a 45% of the final master's class graduating are women, but we still have only about 25% registering in the profession. So I think many people then say, okay, I want to have a family. I need to be a bit more flexible. I'm not going to be a high profile architect. I'll work for other people. I'll do jobs without registering. I'll keep my life a little more flexible. So I think that's one of the factors and that this gets exploited. Uh, and then the other thing is I think we are just still inclined to not take up our voice. And we are inclined to say, okay, I can do the work. I'll do it quietly in the back corner. I don't mind whether anybody really realizes that this is what I'm doing or that I've achieved this, that or the other. Um, and so we are backward and coming forward and and fighting for our place. Uh, and so often I think a lot more of the work is being done by women architects, but they're not necessarily taking the credit for it. So there's an undervalue, underappreciation an undervalue, yes. for the work that they've done because... And under, sel under self-appreciation and under self-valuation. It's so unfortunate because there's a massive investment that goes into becoming qualified. And if you're right there at that, that cusp to not go forward and to become registered in a profession that you've invested so much time, effort and money into, it almost becomes a waste. Yes, it is a waste. And I think it, it lowers the voice. But what I was very... Uh, I've just come from the Australian Institute of Architects uh, conference in Melbourne. And what was very interesting to me uh, is that about half the conference attendees were over 40. And of those, I would say 90% were male, which is the kind of profile that we tend to have here too. And the other half were un probably under, th under 30 and generally female. So I think worldwide there's a big uh, emphasis now on, on balancing out disparities. And certainly the conference program, 90% of the presenters and keynote speakers and chairs of sessions and everything else were female. Mm -hmm. So I think the profession is making a big effort to, to uh, equalize the balance again. But these types of transformation shifts, it almost seems to be generational. Like you've indicated, you know, people being over 40 and, and predominantly men. 
the ones that are under 30, you're seeing more of a, a dominant female profile. Yes, definitely it is generational. Look, when I went to study architecture, uh, one of the South African universities said that they only took in eight female um, students because we were just going to go off and have families, which S- I did have. So women, as well as women a were quotas. I didn't go to that university. <laughs> but so, so yes, I think there has... There Worldwide, it has been a male-dominated profession. I mean, there was a big uh, fuss. So um, Robert Venturi got the Pritzker Prize for Architecture for a book which he, which he had co-produced with his wife, um, who has actually started her career at studying architecture at WITS. Uh, and she has only now won the fight to also be co-awarded the Pritzker Prize. This is Denise. This is Denise Scott Brown. Yes. So, uh, yes, uh, that is that that is has been the kind of bias in the profession, and I think I was brought up in a home where it there was no difference made between opportunities for uh, boys or girls, and I received all the encouragement. So I. I never went into the profession expecting hurdles, and I think in that way, uh, then there weren't so many hurdles. Mm. But if you come in very aware of the fact that things might be stacked against you, um, it and and hesitant for that reason, you you actually have to take it on very head on. <laughs> but there are issues of disparity, and one of mm. the things that I find across, uh, you know, I think there was a study done by the Institute of Race Relations, which identified mm. that on average, women earn twenty three percent less than yes. their male counterparts. That unfortunately remains so, and the whole uh, uh, secrecy around who earns which salaries and the fact that these things are not discussed and disclosed. I mean, for any job that's advertised there's never a disclosure of what the salary is going to be. That gets uh, negotiated on an individual basis to see, okay, let's see what this person, what, how low can, can the price be for this person uh, is the general kind of attitude. What do you think women can do, in your opinion, to, <laughs> let's say, better the odds of equal pay? I think you have to find out what the ballpark figures are you have to find out what you are worth and you have to don't walk in and assume that this is the salary you have to go and negotiate for it i suppose it also goes back to your point from a, almost like i'm thinking on a cultural level and, and patriarchy on self-value it is on self-value and you have to you have to take the whole spectrum of things into consideration. It's not just your professional experience. It's the fact that you are a very good multitasker, that you are a good organizer, that you've learned all sorts of other skills in other contexts as well, increases your value. Don't underestimate that. Oh, that the peripheral tools and skills that yes, you've, you've accumulated you've over accumulated time. accumulated over time. And from a, p- a point of view of, of, A, getting women more in t- into the workforce, uh, realizing better pay, there's also aspects of, of leadership, which I think is another important component, where if you've got women in leadership, they are more likely to be encouraging of incorporating other women, bringing them up through the ranks. Yes, definitely. And I think certainly in the architectural posi- profession and in academia, that is happening at the moment. There's a strong 
emphasis that on uh, yes, bec making things a bit more equitable, and then certainly people are encouraging. Uh, and, and I think the thing of role models is very important. Mm. It, uh, and it's also that you have leaders who understand what the factors are and what the what the odds are, uh, and can help other women uh, to negotiate what is is a not It's not a level territory, and uh, every. Every situation has its own challenges. I'm not saying that there aren't challenges for men as well, but um, it helps to have women who know what the challenges are for women. I mean, we have women students who are coming back with small babies and things like that. Uh, and the fact that I can say to somebody, you know, if you need to bring your baby in today uh, and if you want to feed her, there's my office. You know, there are things like that which do make life's, life simpler. Accommodation and support mm. tools. Yes. Today, we're talking to Professor Arjen Janssen von Rendsburg, who is the director of the architecture program at the University of the Witwatersrand. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. You are listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective, on frequency 9625 kHz on the 31 meter band, also available on DSTV Channel 802. Prof. Janssen von Rensburg, a question I'd like to ask you now goes on more of a personal reflection to, to your personal journey. Some of our guests who've all reached tremendous achievements in their respective fields have, have spoken about what have been some of the key drivers to their success. Some people speak about fear as being a motivator. Others talk about hard work and perseverance. In your opinion, what would you say have been your key drivers? Well, I grew up in a family who really encouraged us to be very curious about the world in general and to find things out and to find out how things work and to find out more. So I've always had a great uh, curiosity about things, uh, which drives one to find out things and learn things and and to look at learning as, uh, as something which gives one a lot of pleasure. Um, I think I'm a I'm a very I have a strong will so that means I can be extremely stubborn but that can be very useful when you do need to uh, get a lot of things done uh, so yes I think I've been brought up to work hard and to explore the world and to try to understand the world which was a good starting point uh, I also think I really enjoy what I do I enjoy architecture, I enjoy um, finding solutions, I enjoy uh, improving things. Uh, so I think a very strong driver is the fact that I'm passionate about what I do. Uh, and then I have always had wonderful support systems. I have a great family support system. My husband has been the person who's really challenged me and encouraged me to do things. Uh, so, so yes, I think all those have been big plus points. And casting your mind back, can you share some of the pivotal moments in your life growing up? Uh, I th well, a very early moment was 
I went to a school where they were starting to explore project schools uh, and they chose some of the students in the class who look who were causing trouble because they were bored and gave them extra projects to do uh, so I had this project to do about I had to collect leaves from trees and sort of write about trees and so on and I came home and I thought oh this is bad I'll collect a couple of leaves quickly put them in the book carry on playing and my mother said no if you if something's worth doing it's worth doing properly and she took me on walks in nature reserves to collect to collect leaves to go to the botanical institute to identify them to find out all about things and find out what glue can you stick them onto the paper with that works properly uh, and so I think I was really encouraged to find out what's what's interesting and rewarding about doing things properly uh, to not take shortcuts so that was one thing uh, I remember my cousin telling me that she believed in the 80-20 uh, principle that 80% of the work produces or 20% of the work produces 80% of the results and then to get it perfect it takes another 80% of the work and you have to find the right kind of balance point. So I think my own family tended towards 100% uh, and to find out that in order to be efficient and get a lot of things done you need you need to find the right balance. And then I think the big thing that my husband has a very wide perspective on things. You need to understand the big picture and you have to get the detail right. And I think what he taught me is that the synergy of things, if you can be involved in different things that are all leading in the same direction and you can start to have an influence and start to do some cross-pollination, you can get far more done. You can actually make things change and move in directions. You can be working terribly hard in one little field, but if you're not um, starting to harness that energy, you're not going to get a great deal done. Those are wise words. Who would you say have been some of the strong women in your life? I think I grew up in a family where women had had the chance to go and study. My grandmother went and studied in the 1920s and got her BA degree. So that was an unusual thing. Very at that rare time. for the period. Yes. So I think I grew up in a family where women were recognized as equals and had had the opportunities to do things and were doing things. Uh, my mother gave us a great deal of support. But I think, oddly, it was not necessarily strong women who encouraged me. It was the fact that I grew up in an environment where there were men who recognized women's potential and didn't think that they should be doing anything differently. And that was the most encouraging thing. I mean, when I was small, my dad, I was his assistant in the garage. He'd say, you know, pass me the hammer, and that kind of thing. So yes, I grew up with a kind of technical understanding, which was mm. extremely useful in architecture. But I almost think more important is, is as you've said, it's, it's being in this egalitarian yes. society that was what you, you that knew that was what I knew and that is what I expected and when it wasn't like that I, I tried to write it because I assumed that that is how it should be reminds me of a conversation I had a good few years ago with uh, she was the then dean of, of education at uh, University of Pretoria Irma Ilof and she said I never knew that single women could be 
anything else other than strong because her her mom was a single mother mm. and that was just how women were. Yes, and women can be incredibly strong. <laughs> yes. And what would you say has been the best lesson that you've learned throughout your career? Uh, when I failed a subject and I found that the earth did not stop turning, nothing terrible happened. I learned from my experience. I learned what the limitations were. And these expectations that we have of ourselves that we should never fail are t totally unrealistic. And in fact, you learn far more from failing than from succeeding. How do you incorporate that into your teachings? I think it's one of the key things where we try to teach students to experiment. And schools teach you that there's a right answer and a wrong answer. There isn't. There are better answers and worse answers. But if you keep on exploring, you're going to find something that's even better. So if you're scared of exploring, you're not going to get anywhere. You need to learn. So we do a lot of tutorials, projects where people are experimenting with rough stuff. And you say, it doesn't matter how it comes out. Just try. Find out what works. Find out what doesn't work. Uh, and it takes that edge off things. Hmm. You know, and you look at the, the progress in Silicon Valley, it's one of the, the mantras is fail but fail fast. Mm. Yes, and learn from it. What did you learn from the failure? Yes, you have to have that learning. Otherwise, yes. it, it makes the, the failure a waste and, and not, an, not an experience to, yes. to move up from. And finally, as we close off the conversation today, could you share a few words of wisdom mm. or inspiration that you'd like to pass on to young ladies that are, are listening to us in the continent? Okay, that, it's difficult to uh, summarize that. But I think the most important thing is evaluate Evaluate yourself realistically. You probably have far more skills and talents than you realize. There are many things that you're learning every day which are not a professional degree or a specific qualification. When you start to put all that together, it's a sizable thing that you can offer. And if you have a dream about something, keep on finding opportunities to get closer to that. There's no paved highway to anything. But if you keep, if don't let go of it because there isn't a paved highway. You're going to find the bits and pieces, you'll piece them together, you'll arrive at that thing. And, and believe in yourself. You are unique. You have to be unique. Don't ever try to be anybody else or like anybody else. You, there's, there's a puzzle piece that's only your shape and size that's needed to complete the picture. And if you can do that well, then people will recognize you and you will be happy. <laughs> Thank you for that insight. I think that you know, my take out on that is the importance of learning about the different skills that you accumulate over time to, to fill in that big picture and that the journey to your destination is not necessarily a straight line. It is a zigzag. And you, and you have a long lifetime. You don't need to do everything all at once. You can do one thing and then the other thing and then the other thing and eventually you'll get them all integrated. Thank you so much for joining us today and um, sharing your time with us. Thank you very much. It's been, and I think this is a wonderful program. Thank you very much for allowing me onto it. Absolute pleasure. And may you go on to, to continue producing architects who can change the world. Thank you. 
You have been listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective. And we have been talking to Professor Ariane Janssen van Rensburg, who is the Director of the Architecture Program at the University of the Witwatersrand. <laughs>